Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path here in Asia. Before I get started with today's episode, I'd just like to let you guys know that I do have a career coaching program. So if you're feeling unfulfilled or not so happy at your corporate job, but not quite sure what else you'd want to do, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or find me via LinkedIn. I'd love to see how I can help. And for those of you who aren't so sure what you'd want to do, I have great news for you. I'm sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion. It's a framework that has helped me and many of my clients in finance, tech, law, consulting, and more figure out what their dream job is. Want it? Check out the show notes to today's episode. All right, let's get into today's episode. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Aaron Chin. He actually started off his career selling credit data, but eventually moved to become the general manager of furniture store Bow Concepts. Now, he's the founder of The Editor's Company, a company that provides online home styling to help you create your dream home. So how did Aaron get into the furniture business? And what led him to eventually break out and start his own company? I'll hand over to Aaron now to share his story. Well, welcome, Aaron, to the podcast. So excited to have you here with us today. It's good to be here. So first things first, just kind of wanted to start all the way at the beginning, right? You studied finance in school, right? I did a master's in finance. I followed my bachelor's and I did it partly because everyone else was doing finance. Also, my school offered a free master's if you made a certain grade, which wasn't too high as it's very solid B student. But uh, yeah, I made the grade and then yeah, it was free and it was perfect because it sounded like it made sense and it gave me another year to procrastinate. Got it, got it. But what was your undergrad? Was your undergrad in something different? Economics. I mean, it was fun to study things that are so theoretical, in my view. And so you graduated with a finance degree. When you were looking for a job back then, where were you at? Like, what were you thinking? I really had no idea by that point. I think during my undergrad, you know, the summers, I did internships with law firms, because I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I did it in finance, did it with Citigroup. I think as interns, it's hard to really know <laughs> what other people are doing. You barely get any responsibilities, real responsibilities. But yeah, it just didn't feel like the past I wanted to take. So yeah, I, I didn't really have too much of an idea. But I knew I wanted to do something meaningful and I wanted to, you know, uh, be successful, whatever that means. Not having a particular industry in mind, I started asking around about what is the one skill that is most important for success. As my dad, as like a lot of uncles or people I thought were successful. And I think the most consistent answer or top answer I got was sales skills. I think I'm naturally quite introverted and on top of that, also a little bit shy. Not so much now, but especially back then. But I heard sales and I was like, okay, that definitely seems like something that makes me very uncomfortable. It's going to be a long working life, so I better figure out how do I succeed at that or hone that. So then I just looked for sales jobs. I knew that it probably wouldn't come very naturally to me because of a certain amount of shyness and fear of rejection. I just wanted to put myself in that position 
to do something that would definitely hone that or at least put me out of my comfort zone. So yeah, that's where I ended up at uh, Dun & Bradstreet selling credit data, credit reports to other companies. I was a corporate salesperson and I had to sell to a variety of different companies and in different industries, consulting, banks, uh, law firms, trading companies. So it definitely put me out of my comfort zone, definitely pushed me to cold call, to you know, walk up to companies and the like. Were you specifically looking for sales roles in like a corporate or like selling a B2B or it was just like, hey, any sales role will do. And this happened to be one that you were like, cool, let's try it out. I, I think I specifically looked for corporate sales jobs because I thought it looked better to be in corporate sales. I think I just had a, this perception. But I think in hindsight, later on in my career, I definitely did retail sales and I, I hired and trained retail salespeople. And definitely it's not any less challenging. Retail sales or consumer sales is you know, just as demanding and, and difficult. And I think that the principles are similar, but yeah. Okay. So, you know, you worked there for a couple of years. What made you decide to leave? I, I really sucked at it. <laughs> I can't say that I was a good salesperson. I think I was making my sales quotas most of the time, but definitely uh, not the best salesperson. Uh, well, I think it definitely helped me be braver and to take rejection. And I, I learned a lot from it and it helped me appreciate how hard work sales is. I wasn't there for that long, uh, a little bit more than a year, but it got a load of humdrum and I wanted to do something a little bit more enterprising. So I just started exploring different routes and other projects or other companies to join. And at that point in time, were you still like, hey, let me go apply to another sales function and further hone my skills? Or were you like, mm, okay, I think I, I have a taste of this. I don't really need to, to focus on this at this point of my career. I think it was the latter. In college, I, I started a small business too. So I had a little bit of a taste of something that worked. It was definitely a very tiny business, but... That gave me good pocket money. It was a storage business. Have you heard of College Box in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's something yeah. similar. So, you know, yeah, they were in the U.S. and helping college students store their stuff over the summers uh, or winters. So they didn't have to, you know, lug it back home and then, you know, bring it back to campus. But they were very expensive. And I don't remember the details now, but I, I remember there were other terms that made it kind of inflexible. Back in college, I roomed with science students <laughs> and for some reason a lot of them always stayed behind to do research in the labs and things like that throughout the you know holidays so i thought you know they have empty apartments we would you know continue to lease you know maybe for two years or even longer so you would have the apartment you wouldn't break the lease over the summer because you can't and it's not you know that expensive anyway in our city so for example, for our apartment, maybe half the house would be stay on campus or less than half. But all the people have empty rooms and happy to subsidize their rent with some money, right? Or, or even to make money on top of their rent. So what I started was, uh, we called it Clark Use Storage Exchange. So it was basically a platform that connected students who wanted to store their stuff with other students who would be willing to lease out their room or uh, other spaces in their uh, apartments for a fee per box per month. Mm -hmm. And I just took a commission out of that. And when I say platform, it was just me walking around, you know, tabling and having you know, handmade posters that uh, worked, setting up meetings to have these contracts that I wrote by myself. And I just took 20% out of every deal. That's super awesome. You always had this entrepreneurial side to yourself. So when you were looking for your first job, you were like, hey, the sales skills that I am looking to acquire, I'm going to one day translate it into your own company. 
was that kind of what you were thinking in the back of your mind? Or was it like, hey, this was kind of cool setting up my own business. Who knows? Maybe yeah. I'll be an entrepreneur. Maybe not. I want to be careful of not sort of editing my own memory and say, yeah, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I think if we track back to the historic exchange business, I wanted to make a little bit of money. And I think I was always just more interested in building stuff. And I think one thought was I want to do stuff and maybe I would rise to the top and <laughs> be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or something significant, or maybe at least the C-suite or something like that. So I think I always wanted to do something bigger, uh, a little more significant. I don't think I had a clear idea what that was. But then I think the more I worked, the more I kind of figured out where my interest lies and how I wanted to work. So it just over time slided more towards being a little more entrepreneurial and starting my own projects or working with others to start new projects. So it was very much like, hey, I'm going to get a job after college and try out the corporate route. And entrepreneurship wasn't something that you were like aiming for or planning for. It just kind of over time consolidated into, oh, this is actually a viable path for me. Yeah, I think so. I think different people have different interests and what they're comfortable with and also what kind of environments they strive in. And for me, that was definitely the thought that I would join other organizations and learn from good people or be in environments where I'm pushed to learn. So Dun & Bradstreet was definitely that. I can't say I was super passionate about credit data that I was selling, but I think I was just really want to do well in it. I tried hard. And then I think I realized, okay, maybe I'm not super excited about doing this narrow function. I don't think there's anything good or bad with that. Some people like to specialize, but I wanted to like know more. I remember uh, even at Dun & Bradstreet, I developed a good friendship with the marketing person and I kept trying to help her and I wanted to be a marketing person. I wanted to know how it works, you know, to, to draw the leads in. So I think I just wanted to find an environment where I could absorb more things. So that's why I tried to look for different things. And the naive me, I started writing a business plan thought, okay, maybe that's the way to be more enterprising. I got this idea from a friend and I started writing a business plan and started to pitch it to different people. It was a pasta bar, quick, casual restaurant, kind of like a print manger maybe, but that would sell, you know, good quality pasta in a cup. And the idea was that we would have a smaller stores, a very simple operation, like, and we would have fresh pasta that cooks faster. And so it's kind of like a fast food restaurant. Yeah, it was just an idea. And I had no idea oh. how, how I would have executed it. Oh, interesting. It so was, you, you wanted to start something at that point. Yeah, I wanted to start something. And mm -hmm. I think it was uh, largely inspired by my dad, whom he had a corporate life too. He was also in science and, and medicine. And then he worked for HP for quite a few years and uh, did very well there. And then he actually had an idea too. And then he wrote a business plan and, and, and got funded and the rest is history. I think I was inspired by that. And I think it was an encouragement from him to just do it, to just try it out. When you put the business plan together, have you put a business plan together before? Or did you know how to put one together? No, not at all. But throughout the process, it's definitely a lot of help from my dad, just like asking him. And I have to be so grateful for having dad like that, who's done it before. And he was just very patient, never laughed at me <laughs> for, for all the silly things and the silly questions. He never made me feel like how naive and unrealistic I was. He definitely, I think, knew that a lot of things I was trying to do didn't make the most sense in terms of my own background. But he had a lot of encouragement for me on top of the practical things that he was showing me. So I was getting his advice and looking at his old business plans, you know, and of course I was Googling a lot and just 
going through the exercise. And I think that exercise in itself to, you know, conceptually understand a business, basically wasn't there yet, but at least understand what are the things I need to think about? What are the big things? was very helpful. Got it. And for someone who's thinking about putting together a business plan, do you have any advice for them? I think for me, when I wrote that business plan, I was trying to do it as full as possible. I think it was ended up being like 60 pages. I wrote a business plan first uh, and did all the financial projections. But today, if I were to do a business plan, it's very important to first understand the business before you put pen to paper. And so there's a lot of note-taking, a lot of observation, a lot of meetings with people asking questions instead of going right to the financials. Because I think that when I was doing my business plan on the past bar, I focused a lot on the numbers. But what I didn't know or what I couldn't really intelligently talk about was the practical things, the little things that made the business work. Like, how am I going to store all that stuff in the store? What do the numbers look like in terms of that? Got it. Okay. So you were like, hey, ready to move on from this job. Let's try writing a business plan and see if my idea gets funded. What happened? It didn't get fully funded. I, I think it was a wonderful exercise because... Writing a business plan, it was kind of a dry process because I've never run a business before. I thought I knew more than I did. But I think that's also the advantage that I was young, I was inexperienced, I was naive. I think you definitely have that mentality when you're younger. Of you can figure out things as you go, and you can. And I think that's the advantage of being young. You don't know how to be afraid, right? Yeah, so I, I went around trying to talk to anyone. But I think there were some people that agreed to fund it out of seeing my passion and, and, and I don't know what they were thinking, why they would agree to that. But one potential investor I, I talked to I ended up being the person who recruited me into the bull concept world. It was Joanne and she was the future franchisee at that point of bull concept. So bull concept is a franchise uh, business and most cities are run by franchisees who would start a, a few stores under their whole uh, system. So she was about to invest into this and bring it to Hong Kong. And I was pitching this and she asked me why. And I said, I want to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to start something. I wanted to learn how to run a business. And she said, well, if you want to be an entrepreneur, why don't you be an entrepreneur here? She had all kinds of ideas uh, about what she wanted to do. Again, like that in Bradstreet, I didn't know too much about furniture. I didn't know about the industry's potential or very inexperienced in that. But it was good. I think it was an easy yes for me because she was going to give, and she did give me a lot of autonomy. She gave me a lot of trust. And again, I don't know why people would do that. I was a 23-year-old kid with zero experience in retail and furniture and trading and uh, renting stores or, or whatnot. But she did. And yeah, so I started the next month, basically. That's so fascinating. I know that you said that you don't know why she trusted you, but there must have been something uh, about either your business plan or, or the way you spoke to her. You even got investors to invest in your original business idea. What do you think it was about you that kind of gave people the confidence to take a chance? I think it was confidence. The way that I spoke had carried an air of confidence. And I think I was humble enough to say, like, I don't know too much about many things. I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to you know, learn from you. I'm willing to learn from other people. I'm willing to figure it out, basically. I think that we lose a lot of that as we continue on and gain more experience, which, of course, experience is a great thing. But one danger of that is you start to look more at the limitations of things and of yourself and you start to think that you can't or you start to think that you need to throw more money at it 
or to hire someone who is an expert. But I think the reality is, and especially in today's world where things are changing so fast, you realize that if you have the right mindset, which is maybe you can call it the abundance mindset versus the scarcity mindset, that you could learn a lot of things. So I think with Joanne, with the other would-be investors, I think people just saw that I was willing to figure it out. It was a little naive, but I think they saw that, okay, here's a kid with energy and at least he believes it. And I think they've done you know their own things, very impressive in their own ways. So they know that you know if you're just willing to figure it out and if you're humble and you don't carry an attitude, that's powerful. So it sounds to me like it was a combination of humility and drive that came across in these yes. meetings that gave people the confidence that, hey, maybe Aaron's got what it takes. Let's take a chance on him. How did you find people to pitch to? It wasn't that many people, but I was just asking around anybody who would talk to me. And I think people in general are quite open to listening to your business idea. Of course, these were warm introductions, but I had a one-page teaser that I sent around, and I think it seemed interesting enough at that time. Cool. So you eventually met Joanne, and at that point, she gave you this opportunity to help her run Flow Concept. Did you give a lot of thought to leaving behind? Because you spent a good amount of time working on your business plan at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah, so it wasn't too difficult of a decision and it wasn't exactly leaving behind because she had her own ideas when I talked to her about the passive bar. And she was also in a phase of exploring different business ideas besides Bull Concept too. So it wasn't exactly like, come in, Aaron, and forget about your passive bar. It was like, oh, interesting. I have some ideas about that. And here are also other ideas that I have. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I can continue to explore this passive bar idea and I can start learning about other businesses. I think actually it was easy. And I wasn't super, super fixed on one business idea. I think what I wanted more so was a different environment where I could start doing stuff. I could learn about different things and start to build. I think it was really the building that attracted me. Got it. So then you were like, okay, let me go move into Bo Concept. How was that transition? What was it like working there? Oh, it was the most exciting time. I mean, I was 23, had very little experience, but I was really thrown into the deep end. I think Joanne had a lot of ideas and she was very busy with different projects too. So she really meant it when she said, why don't you be the entrepreneur here for this? Many firsts for me. You know, it was setting up credit lines with a bank, first time doing marketing, hosting events, systems and, and logistics and deliveries and working in the store, doing sales and, you know, learning the products. So I was clueless half the time. And I think we made a lot of dumb mistakes. But I think it did work out very well that me and the team were all young and energetic. I think we made it through quite well with uh, raw energy (laughs) and optimism. So when she hired you, you were like the first person on the team. Yeah, I was the first hire. I think I was called a project manager, but it was really like a venture manager. And so then my first project was uh, Bo Concept. Got it. So when you first joined, what did you focus on getting up to speed on first, since there were so many things you had to do? So Bull Concept was very good. It's a great franchise system. And the whole franchise universe was made up of, I think, like a hundred something franchisees. It must have been all over the world. But it really operated almost like one company. HQ from Denmark was very good. They had great guidance. Setting up a business had its own project schedule and all the plans and all the guidance. They had a, a manager in for Asia that was in charge of helping all the franchisees. So there was a lot of guidance from that and a lot of learning about the business and how to set up a store. And then, of course, there were a lot of local things that were beyond it. Like, how do you, you order shopping bags? 
which we procrastinated on. We didn't have it for the first two weeks. It was, it was very awkward to ask customers to carry out like vases without shopping bags. <laughs> but yeah, I think Bocons have helped a lot. And in addition, it's just asking. Other people for referrals and things like that. So, bow concept was a little late to coming to to Hong Kong. I think it was because rent was so expensive here. It just took a little longer to find crazy people like us to be willing to, you know,、uh, dive into it and rent expensive stores. So, the first order of business was to find a store, and it was actually interesting because the normal. Or the predictable spots would have been like Horizon Plaza, where there were a lot of other furniture stores, or Home Square in Shatin, or, or Happy Valley, or、uh, Wan Chai. But again, I think the lack of experience helped here. We decided to actually go to Wenham Street, where the restaurants and and bars are, and we thought that's where a lot of our customers, especially the first target audience that we wanted to target, more international, more expatty. You know, professionals in Central. I think that's where they hang out. So let's put a store there. So a little unorthodox, but I think the sort of inexperience and the intuitive decision there between me and the the bow concept manager really helped. Everyone was supportive, and so we just started to build a store there. Got it. I think that that's pretty interesting. Like coming from the consumer perspective, deciding what customer you want to focus on. And then going to make business decisions on the back of、mm-hmm. that, because I think a, a lot of people start off with like, "Oh, this is the idea, and this is how I envision it."、Mm-hmm. Let's try to find customers to fit into this profile.、So、what were some other things that you felt like you really learned from your experience at Bo Concept? I mean, of course, like I mentioned, there were all these sort of operational things that I learned. But I think above that, it was leadership. It was very lucky for me, I think, because Bo Concept found a,、uh, a gap in the market for. Design furniture that was a little easier. We had the full collection, and the concept made it easier for you to shop for design furniture instead of having to go to many different stores. You can get more stuff from us, and we had software to help you envision your home, and then the catalog was easy to browse through and buy. So I think that the concept was right. I was lucky in in a way that I could just take that, and there was this need in the market.、It、was still <laughs> quite challenging for me, but at least a safe environment for me to put into practice a lot of the leadership stuff that I was learning from. Mentors and books. I, I read a lot about business books because I thought I had to catch up. But it was a really s- kind of safe environment to put those into practice. So it was a little bit like an MBA on steroids. And yeah, I think leadership and how to first have a mission and how do you articulate that and really infuse it into the business. I just had a chance to understand just kind of seeing the team and what people were motivated by. You know what was the right reward、uh, system, and also just being human, being empathetic, and realizing ultimately everything has to be mission based for it to work well. All the frameworks and all the marketing won't be worth anything without a mission that people would generally buy into. When other people see that you are for real about that, and then the team is for real about that, then everything follows. The customers, your partners, definitely saw that as well. Yeah. And what was that mission for you guys? Like, did it take long to define that mission? It kind of did. In the beginning, it was this whirlwind of setting things up and just keeping up with the beginning of the business. But I think it became clear that what we wanted to do was just to serve a lot of customers well, to help them, you know, live a little bit better at home. I think it really internalized when we started serving customers, and we make the first sale. I remember it was one sofa, and then. You know, maybe a month or two later, we delivered it, and then people started being happy and coming back, and referring their friends, and 
And then we started doing fun things for the store. I think we had like champagne or beer and coffee and really made the store inviting. I remember we had this lady and she just, you know, wore crazy socks. Right? And she would just come in and hang out. And we enjoyed it, you know. In terms of mission and vision, we, we understood it intellectually. But I think after we started doing the business and really creating value and customer satisfaction and just relationships, really, then we really internalized that mission and lived it. And I think that's what's so exciting about it. And we saw progress. We went from 50 customers a month to 100 customers a month. And we thought about you know, how those are all real homes, right? That we had at least a little bit of influence or impact to. And that was very, very re rewarding. I think that's, that's super key. And something that people maybe think is like very fluffy and don't attribute enough value to that. You're so right. It really helps to gel the whole branch together, gel the employees together, yeah. get people behind sure. the brand and uh, get new customers in, in as well. I think it's kind of like in Star Wars, like the force. It, it, it glues everything together. It has a lot of power, you know, <laughs> it could be good or it could be used for evil. I like that analogy. That's a good analogy. Yeah. So you stayed at Bow Concept for how long? I think around three years. What made you decide to move on? It was a very happy time, a very exciting time. And it was a lot of learning, but I wanted to find a mission, another thing to build. So, you know, started exploring different things and bringing other brands to Hong Kong, exploring the possibility of that. But ultimately, it was uh, Bow Concept. They were trying to do it differently in China, and they invited me to turn around the Beijing market because I think they liked what I was doing and what the team did in Hong Kong. So they asked me if I wanted to go to Beijing and do Bull Concept there. They already had two stores that was owned by themselves. But they wanted to hand it over to a franchisee to do it better. And they offered me that opportunity to buy them out with um, very little money because they wanted that to be a catalyst for China. Yeah, so I started working on that. And I think that's the main reason that I left. So this yeah. would have been a big yeah. change then in terms of your financial, but financially would have been like going from a salaried yeah, owner great. to like a business owner. Exactly. Then I would really think like an owner. I thought I thought like an owner, but I think until I really started having to buy something and having to be fully responsible, it definitely changed my mindset a little bit. And how did that conversation go with Joanne when you were like, hey, actually I got this like cool opportunity. Was she like, okay, great for yeah. you. Or was it a difficult conversation? <sighs> I, I think in hindsight, I, I regret a little bit of that conversation because I think there was definitely a friction. I don't think I, I did a very good job explaining exactly why I left, but, but it was okay. I mean, we have a good relationship now. So it was more just the opportunity in front of you was more exciting that kind of led you there. Yeah, I guess now you know, in this podcast, I start to understand also why I, I did some of the things I did. I think it was this desire to build something. I think that's what I'm interested in. I wanted to bring it back to the pasta bar idea. The entire time that you were there, you initially went in thinking that there'd be like other projects or other opportunities that you could yeah. move around in. What happened? I think it was still in the back of my mind, but I just never had time to work on that idea. Maybe it's different for everyone, but I feel like sometimes the narrative that entrepreneurs build what they're passionate about personally is not entirely correct, or it's not entirely accurate, at least not for everyone. I think for me, at least, it's not that I wanted to build a furniture empire. I think it's two things. I wanted to do something that provided a lot of value to customers. And the other thing was I wanted to build something that works for the sake of it. I think you could say that that's passion. I mean, people could be passionate about the environment, they're passionate about cryptocurrency or whatever. 
But I think for me, what's really exciting is when you're building and it works. And I think you could develop your passion into that. Like that passion could develop. But building a startup that doesn't work, there's no fun in that. You could be so passionate about pasta or you could be so passionate about building stores. And if it doesn't work, there's no fun in that. I love that way of thinking. What you have is like, hey, I love solving problems. I love building something from scratch and seeing it work. And that's what Mm -hmm. you're passionate about. And it doesn't need to be in a specific industry or a specific sector. And I I really like that because I think for a lot of people, they're like, oh, I don't know what I'm interested in. There's not one particular industry that I'm so drawn to. So I think that that's a a really interesting angle of of approaching passion. Yeah, I think you don't have to be the one to come up with a new idea. It could be somebody else. You could help them build it. Or it could be an existing idea and you're trying to do it in a different way. So yeah, I think you could develop passion into that thing if, if it starts working. Cool. So then you decided to invest in that business in Beijing. You decided to fly over. Yeah. So that's another story. So I was working on that. And because I had worked with the Bull Concept you know, management team, Denmark and, and Hong Kong, I had a good, good relationship. And so I was working with them on this China thing, right? We had plans drawn up. It was very close signing it. And then uh, at the 11th hour, uh, Bull Concept actually was sold to 3i a private equity firm in, in London. So very quickly, I think they review plans and a lot wow. of the team was changed. Obviously, China, it's its on their radar. It's a big potential market. And yeah, I don't know how the conversation went over there, but I imagine they probably asked the team, so your plan is to put a 26-year-old kid there <laughs> <laughs> and maybe start with two stores, existing stores. And so that's your plan for this market of 13 billion people. But the mood changed. And so I... Mm-hmm started think of something else i'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know that i do have a career coaching program designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing your dream career so if you too want to build a fulfilling purposeful career like aaron but you're not exactly sure what your dream career looks like i'm sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion want it Check out the show notes to today's episode to download the free guide now. All right, back to the episode. Wow, that's must have been pretty <clears throat> surprising. <laughs> I guess at, at that point, were you like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Yeah, definitely. There was a lot of anxiety. Quick, Looking back, I think that I, I had some small amount of success with Bo Concept in Hong Kong. And then I also obviously felt great about myself when I was discussing Beijing and it was about to happen. I was like, wow, I'm the shit, you know? But I think looking back, that was huge learning about pride and about the scarcity mindset. I had gotten so engrossed in that and so focused on that 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 had become my everything. So when that was taken away and looking back, it's such a blessing that it was, then it really forced me to take a step back and reevaluate you know, what am I doing? Am I really that passionate? Or am I really that interested in opening stores there? Or is it just for money or for status? So yeah, there were some difficult periods, but definitely helped me confront my own pride. Definitely probably was like a huge turning point in your life. But at that point, what were you thinking for next steps for yourself? I think I, I worked on different projects or I explored different projects to do very different things. I was in Cambodia for this huge Belt and Road project. <laughs> I was with this Hong Kong company that worked on that. But then I don't think I felt like that was the right thing to do. It wasn't for me. And then I was with another company to do this new venture. 
it was an existing kind of real estate company and they were trying to do kind of a high-end Airbnb platform for Hong Kong and Asia. That didn't work, ultimately. So I was just exploring different things and I think that's where the editor's company was born. I've always had this idea of helping people to furnish their homes more easily. So I just started talking to different people about it, just casually, just to friends. And then I met my partner through a mutual friend. So my partner now, Fionn, is in many ways the opposite of me. She's an interior designer by trade, but she had a very similar idea we had a mutual friend and he's like dude you guys need to meet <laughs> this is uh, providence this is fate and that's how i met my uh, fion my co-founder my partner got it so basically after bow concept you were kind of doing a bunch of different roles was that yeah. for like just like a, a couple months here and there this whole time you were still working for someone else right so what yeah. made you decide to take that jump and start your own thing when I reflect on how I work now, I think one of the strength and weakness that I have is that I say yes to everything. I'm very gullible and I believe in everyone and everything. And so when an idea comes and, and when somebody tells me, hey, this is a great idea, I think we should do it. I pretty much believe everyone. But I think I, I learned uh, a little bit more after these two projects where I learned that things have to be holistic and, and you have to believe in your gut and not just have it be based on idealism and, and passion. You have to listen to your heart and, and think, does it sound right? Does it feel right to you? And so the editor's company, it's been on my mind for so long to have some sort of virtual platform or virtual service to help people design their own. Even when you were working at Book Concept. Yeah, Book Concept is the offline version of that. And of course, they were a mono brand, one brand. They had their own collection. But I always thought you could have one brand and do it virtually. Or maybe you could be a platform of many brands, which is what we are, we're doing now with the editor's company. What made you decide to do the editor's company then? Consider you had this idea for a while. So I think Cambodia and the Airbnb thing, I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And I was just kind of following this formula that I thought I had, you know, that, that there's a decent idea. If you just work hard at it, you can do it. I think that formula or that gung-ho, rah-rah motivation kind of mindset came from Bold Concept. It was a little bit of that pride that crept in that I thought if I just work at it and just hack it and figure it out. But the idea sparked again in my head with a virtual platform to help people decorate. I think by that point, I started to soften up a little bit in terms of that I realized, you know, you can't hack everything. If you think about the small success that you had a Bold Concept, you worked hard and you did a lot of things uh, right, but it was actually also just the Bo Concept brand. It was just a really great brand and it really filled a gap in the market. And maybe it wasn't even you, right? Like you had a whole team and you had different personalities, different skill sets. So it's just this realization you can't force everything and it's actually counterproductive. And in this life, you have to work with other people. You can't be good at everything. So the, with the editor's company, the genesis of that was actually talking to a lot of people. I realized I'm not an interior designer. I don't have that skill set. So I have to work on with somebody on that. And, were you working and on the early concepts of editor's company while you were still at the uh, high-end Airbnb? I was. I was working on it during lunch hours, like before work and after work. So in terms so of was, timing, there was an overlap. Yeah. Were you thinking about leaving at that point? Or was it just like, oh, it's just like a side thing. Let me see. Yeah, I think towards the end, last few months, I think it's clear when the business is not working. But yeah, I think for all of the things I've done, I've always started to work on it before I quit. And I think at least to me, that's very important because things take time. Things always take more time and more energy and more resources than you think. And you just need that time. And practically, you need a job. 
you need some income. You also need to not be in so much of a rush, right? Because you have to find the right partner. You have to find the right concept, even. So that that takes time, and I think you have to allow time for that. That's an argument for keeping your job until you have a very sure attraction or very sure plan, at least. And for you, what did you need to figure out for you to feel comfortable moving full time into this? I think there were a few things. So, at the beginning, Hafion took you know, and I debated for like a month or two on what's the right concept. And I'm so thankful that she won some of those debates. I wanted to go more into renovation. You know, I wanted to sell in a, in a menu package, but she convinced me to kind of stay away from that because it's much harder to execute. But she definitely brought her experience. It started with that, just forming the actual concept and being comfortable with it, and trying to build that concept into some sort of sales collateral for us. I think the biggest thing that brought motivation or more confidence to really make the transition was getting a few customers. We didn't really do that much market research, other than just. Feedback from friends about the website and the concept, but the validation we got was really just a few people were actually asking us to help them with their flats to decorate it. The first ever customer, you know, we're still friends to this day, and she was super helpful. I actually was turning her down because I felt like we weren't ready, and she was like, "Please help me with this. I have no idea furnish and how to do this, and I have time." So she just kind of, you know, basically begged us to help her. I was like, "Well, I think there's something here." Yeah, so we helped her with her home. We very quickly lined up all the vendors. It was helpful that I was in, a, in the industry and I knew some of them already. And just try it out. Fion had more confidence in the fact that she could decorate it. I had more confidence that you can actually work with vendors and charge money for the, with a fee or a design fee to the first customer and then to you know, make a commission from some of the brands as well. So we put our confidence together. I think you know missing any one of either would have. You know, made us too afraid to start. But yeah, I think that was the biggest motivation. And then so we started to have a few more customers. To this day, we don't know where they came from because we weren't really ranked on Google and we weren't on social media. But anyway, they came, and、uh, we have a few more customers. And then I started catching up with my old boss at Bo Concept, the founding family. I was talking to him, and they were investing into new concepts, and they became interested, and so they became a third partner. And gave us a very modest amount of seed funding, or you could call it pre-seeding. I think is what we called it, but just enough for, to keep us afloat—a small salary to help us pay ourselves, sustain ourselves, and then to do a little bit of marketing. Yeah, I think those things gave us that confidence to transition. So basically, at this point, you had kind of gotten some customers. You got funding from the guy you used to work for, and and so you're like, okay, I'm going to quit my job and do this full time. How did that go in those early days? I think we definitely spent a few months just like wobbling. The first thing we did was we rented a pop up at Horizon Plaza. Horizon Plaza is a you know industrial building with a lot of furniture stores and also some clothing outlets. But a lot of people, a lot of expats especially, go there to、uh, shop for furniture. So we actually talked to the landlord. And did a sort of collaboration where we rented a 2,000 square foot space, and we reached out to all the furniture stores, the brands in, that's in the building, and collaborated with them by borrowing their furniture and decorating kind of like an industrial loft style. It's very nice.、Uh, we did that for a few months, and the idea was to capture people who are shopping for furniture to walk in and see, oh, how nice! You know, what are you guys doing? And then we would kind of pitch that. So it worked to some extent. We definitely spent a few months trying to. Figure out our flow, and you know how to talk to customers, how to work with our vendors, and who to work with, who not to work with, and then marketing. I think it took a while. Still working on it. You know, still it's always more work to do to perfect it. Marketing was a lot harder, and it was a fresh challenge for me. I thought I knew 
a thing or two about marketing for both concept. But it was comparatively so much easier. Where I had the whole concept, I didn't have to make anything up. And also, I think a furniture store is not hard to understand. But for us, we were a new concept too. So we're a new brand. And I think, but more importantly, we were a new concept. We are interior designers or interior decorators, but we don't help you renovate your space. We help you with all your you know, furniture and decor and all the decorative pieces like rugs and, and curtains and painting the wall. So nothing structural. And that's quite a new concept from what people understand, the existing understanding of people where if you want a furniture place, you want to decorate your place, you just do the best you can to go to all these nice design furniture stores and you just figure it out. Or you could maybe find an interior designer or a decorator to help you. But we were trying to be a little bit more of a concept. We call it an online home styling platform or online home styling service. But what does that mean to customers who, who's never seen this concept or you know, never thought about decorating their home in this way? So I think that was the biggest challenge. We have some awareness in the market, but I think we're still working on helping people see that there's a different way to uh, decorate your home. Like educating on the concept, branding, those were actually more of the challenging things. Because you needed to do those things well in order to bring in the customers. Yeah, for sure. I think educating the customer, the target audience, was very top of mind. And it is still. So we were thinking we need to educate people and tell people, hey, you know, you don't have to go to 10, 15 stores and sacrifice four weekends to, to decorate your house. You could go through our platform and have us help you create from those exact stores and we present you with the best options and work with you. So we were trying to educate people on this. We were talking a lot about the features and how it's more convenient, time-saving, and maybe you decorate better, maybe you even you know, save money because you spend better, uh, and you keep things for longer and it's more sustainable. And all those things are true and great things. But I think the fact that we were so focused on educating people was part of the problem because educating people is so hard, right? In our day and age, especially with social media, where attention spans like two seconds, nobody wants to be educated. Nobody cares what you're educating them about. They care about what they care about. So I think over time, we, we realized, you know, these things are great and important for the customer to know and to understand. But actually, there's something that is even more important that we don't have to educate them on is that most of our target audience want a dream home. They want a home where they could envision more life in it, more laughter, or one that feels more like them, that they could be inspired and wake up feeling like that's their space. I think that we didn't have to educate people on. We just have to say, hey, that's what we're all about too. You have all these great features and you figure it out, but it was about aligning with people on what they wanted already. I, I love it. And I think that that's such a crucial lesson to, to learn and and something I'm also learning as well is really just tap into that emotional side and that dream rather mm -hmm. than highlighting the value proposition of your company. Because when you're running the company, it's easy to be like, okay, these are like my differentiating points. And that's probably yeah. how it works when you're pitching to investors, but that's mm -hmm. not really the way to pitch to, to customers. And actually for customers, they don't really care about your differentiating points down the road, but the initial piece is really just, hey, is this person selling me something that I would even want? This yeah. dream or this feeling, this emotion. And I think that that's really interesting because I think a lot of the times when people start businesses, they don't think that this is the hardest part or that this is the most important part. A lot of the times yeah. they're thinking more about the operations of the company, getting the vendors on board or getting the right uh, price point, for example. Where do you stand on these other things? Was it difficult figuring out what the right price point to charge, figuring out the business model. Yeah, I mean, those things are challenging too, right? But I think 
it's easier when you put it into context of balanced relationships. So what I mean by that is inevitably in every business, there's going to be different stakeholders. Your customers obviously very important, but you also have your own team that serves these customers. And then you have your suppliers and maybe the community as well. And then maybe investors as well. And everyone is a stakeholder because they have a stake in it. And I think it just makes it easier when your mindset is to create a balanced system, a balanced um, ecosystem, instead of trying to see what, how do you optimize a business and looking at your business in a linear way. So in terms of price point, for example, I think that we definitely learn to look at it more in terms of how much value are we offering to customers and what's it worth to them? And then how can we make it accessible, you know? So it's art and science. And then with that price point, does it make sense for us? Is it sustainable for us? Is it sustainable for how much we want to pay our stylists, our interior stylists? And then it's also connected to pretty much every furniture um, brand and dealer in Hong Kong. How do we work with them on what kind of margin that we want to take from them? And all these things are interconnected. And for us, I think we're trying to build a business in a sustainable way. We're not trying to raise millions and billions of dollars to grow too fast. So we really have to think about these things and it has to work well. And it has to be a coherent community or network. Got it. You mentioned uh, a little bit about investing and fundraising. Did you guys fundraise some more? Is that something in the pipeline for you guys? I think we're thinking about it. It's on our mind, but I think we're lucky. There's no immediate need for it because we're profitable and it's a cash flow business. So I think that definitely helps us be more centered and think about, you know, if we want to fundraise, it's for growth and it's for upgrading the customer experience. And I think that kind of speaks to the way you've structured your your business model so that it is a profitable business as opposed to how some startups like to operate, which is very much on hey, we just need to grow, grow, grow and uh, find investors on board to fund that growth. So on that business model aspect, how do you guys set up your business? Like how, how does it actually work? So we charge a flat fee to a customer and we try to make it as accessible as possible. So we don't charge a very high amount for the amount of work that we do for you. So it's 2,600 Hong Kong dollars per room. We do have uh, official rules about how big the room can be, but we're quite lenient on it. So it could be a huge room. But so it's a flat fee per room and we work with you from start to finish, understanding who you are and what are your thoughts and want the needs and aspirations for your home to doing the design plan and, and creating mood boards and then the shopping list and then managing your practical things like your budget and your you know timeline. And then we help you buy everything. So your customer pays us for convenience and we don't mark you up on you know, any of the furniture or decor. So we're able to do all of that for a low flat fee because we partner with our brands too. So because of the volume that we do with them, we get a better price. We get a wholesale price. Got it. Do you feel like you had an edge by working at Bow Concept and being in the furniture space before starting Editor's Company? I think so. It helped me understand the furniture, the consumer, the residential furniture market. I understood, I think, a little bit more about how people think and the customer's journey. A lot of our customers actually have great taste. I remember there were a few customers where Fiona and the stylists were actually thinking, why are they hiring us? <laughs> but we actually realized that at the end of the day, our customers are buying our service and working with us for our skill and what we can offer. But I think the other part of it is that they want somebody to talk to. They want somebody to bounce ideas with and to provide alternative ideas or even just to validate that, yeah, this makes sense uh, or this is great. So there's a very human side to it. One thing that I love about our business is that we create great relationships. 
you know, this past Christmas, we actually had customers just message us or the stylists and send us videos and pictures of their homes being all set up for Christmas parties and saying, hey, oh, thanks for setting up the space and showing us uh, their kids getting ready. And it's very heartwarming. I spoke about like how rewarding it was at Bull Concept because we see how the home comes to life or at least, you know, the furniture gets delivered and they're rather happy with it. But this is like three times, five times more personal because it's the whole home. And they start with us at this literal start of their process. So we definitely don't take that for granted. And it's such a privilege to be able to have people trust us so much and even confide in us. One of the key things I think people worry about when they're starting a business is that they want to find a co-founder. I would love to just hear more about how you went about finding this co-founder relationship. I feel like that's one of the hardest parts about building a company is just finding the right person to partner with. How did I decide to work with Fionn? I think it was a gut level decision. Of course, the prerequisites had to be the person needed to have the actual design skills and had to be able to serve customers, you know, to a reasonable level. I talked to many different designers, but I would say that with Fionn, it felt the least transactional. It's not that she doesn't care about money, the tangible rewards that come from it, but we didn't really talk about that too much. The conversation was focused on, you know, making it work. What would work? What do you think customers in your experience are looking for? And what would they tolerate? What would they be excited about? The conversation centered around that. And I remember her being very engaged in the conversation, and that felt very right for me. She's actually a very in personality. I think she's very different from me. There were other interior designers that I felt like I could talk to them about business, which logically might make sense, but actually it doesn't, maybe. So it was a combination of you kind of talking to a lot of people and kind of knowing what you wanted and also just your gut feeling like, hey, I feel like this is a good person to kind of bounce ideas off of or or balance out your strengths and, and, and your personality. Yeah, it was a relationship that organically formed. And I think this is a good example of how new businesses uh, a lot of times come about. We hear about the, the spark of the idea and then and then the one product and or the, the partnership that formed. And we hear about it sometimes in a more dramatized context, but I think it was kind of organic. And what is that next stage for, for you guys? I think growth. I think we definitely have a great intuitive feel for what our customers want and what is most important things to offer to them. We definitely have a good but imperfect interface. You know, we talk to customers very personally. It's a very high touch service, but yeah, just building some of those tools to make some of the process more optimized or at least more orderly and support our interior stylists to help them do those things. So it seems like so far, like the last couple of years is kind of fine tuning the product trying to figure out how to make sure that the product is resonating with the customer. And then the next mm-hmm. stage for you guys is like, okay, how do we scale that product and tap into more more people and help more people? Yeah, basically, I think we're still working on the basics. We have a lot of ideas, obviously, on how do you do things more clever? How do you use technology? How do you use clever marketing? But I think we're still focused on let's do the basics really, really well first. Got it, got it. And the last question that I have for you is, no, any advice for someone who's just thinking about starting their own business that you wish you had known or that you have learned along the way? I feel like there's a lot, but I think that one thing that I wish I knew or that I wish I thought differently is there's a virtually unlimited amount of money in the world, right? And I think a lot of times we get into that scarcity mindset where we think it, it is limited and you need to charge the lowest price or you need to just hold on to what you have. 
And sometimes for practical reasons, you have to make short-term tactical decisions to you know, stay at your job. But I think that there's a lot of power in serving others and to believe that you can serve others. So if you take it with that mindset of helping others do something that they would they have a big problem with and that you could do it well for them, there's a chance, not always, but there's a good chance that they would pay for it. And you just got to figure out how much value you're offering. And are you really interested in helping those people? Or are you interested in making money? If it's a former, I think it's a little easier. And then you figure out all the other practical stuff. Like, can you scale this serving of value to other people? Nobody's trying to limit you. Nobody's saying that you have to stay in your job. Nobody's saying that you have to quit your job, right? How do you work with your community to be a contributing value to other people? And if you're able to think of a way to do really well and to do it for a lot of people, then I think then you don't really have to worry too much. I think the community would take care of that largely in the form of the economic system. I really like that. I think the abundance mindset and also trying to solve a problem being the first and foremost thing to, to start and being able to help people as, as your starting point for starting a business. I think those are really, really crucial and especially the abundance thing because there's definitely going to be moments when your business isn't doing well and you're just nervous and you just want short-term wins. Oh yeah, I talk a big game, but I still sure. struggle with that week to week basis. I think the other thing is, it sounds obvious, but it's really important to remember especially when things are not going super well. I think just remembering that business goes up and it goes down. And by the time that that happens, it's already happened. And it's just a metric. It's just like what happens in the rear view mirror. And you just got to focus on what you do now. And you don't know what tomorrow will bring. So just remember that and maybe combine it with the abundance mindset that there's a logical reason to everything. Most things you can find a reason for it. And you just got to figure it out. You just got to put one foot in front of the other and just work the problem. And I think that emotional resilience, honestly, is, is so crucial. As you said, like having those ups and downs and how those failures or those successes really impact you emotionally. How do you deal with the, the ups and downs that comes with the business? I think faith has a lot to do with it. Faith and experience. And by faith, I mean, first and foremost, my Christian faith. The Bible says that basically, what are you doing by worrying? You won't even add one more hour to your life by worrying. And that's so true. You know, I think back to all the times when I'm just anxious about sales and leads and your projects and there's nothing you can do about this. And I think that and then just trusting in the process. I know it's very cliche, but the only thing that would change the outcome is what you do now. And what are the lead measures or what are the lead actions that you do? So just focusing on respond and, and having faith that I think will be taken care of. I think whether you're officially religious or you're secularly religious, I think everyone has some sort of belief that things are supposed to work out. It's important to know why do you believe that things will work out. And once you gain some comfort with that and certainty with that, then remember that. And I think remember all the times that your faith has has kept you, you know, alive. I think you'll be okay. And on that note, thanks, Aaron. This has been so insightful. Honestly, it was so much fun chatting with you today and and hearing about all the different things that you've learned and how colorful your career has been. So yeah. Well, thanks for asking such great questions and being such a good partner in conversation. And there you have it, my conversation with Aaron. Here's a couple of key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, similar to what JJ mentioned in the prior episode, it is not only important to have confidence, but also the humility to acknowledge what you don't know and be willing to learn from others. 
That's what will encourage others to take a chance on you. Two, what Aaron learned at Bow Concepts was that it was important to have a mission. Ultimately, all the frameworks and systems need to be mission-based for them to work. A mission will not only tie together your team, but also your partners and your customers to rally together behind you. Three, for Aaron, what he realized was the narrative that entrepreneurs build what they are passionate about is not exactly the full picture. For him, he was passionate about food, but didn't have the expertise or the experiences needed to take his pasta bar idea forward. So instead, he focused on identifying a problem his customer faced, i.e., how to design a home, and built something that would provide value and solve this problem for them. And in turn, this ability to solve their problem then became his passion. His belief is that no matter how passionate you are at something, if it doesn't work, it won't be fun. Number four, don't leave your job to start your own business without a solid plan and some traction. For Aaron, he always started to work on a new project before he quit his existing job. This is especially important because things always take more time and more energy than you think. And having that time and income is great so you don't feel pressured or rushed to find the right partner or concept. Number five, today, especially with social media and people's short attention span, customers don't really care when you educate them on your key value propositions or your product's features. They care about what they care about. That's why it's more important to align your messaging with what people already want and not try to hard sell them on your product's features. For example, instead of sharing about how convenient and time-saving the editor's company is, they focus on how they can help people achieve their dream home. And lastly, his advice for others. Don't get trapped in a scarcity mindset and be afraid of losing what you have. Have faith in yourself and always remember that in business, there is going to be ups and downs. Don't worry about what has already happened, but instead look forward and focus on what the next best steps are to take. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in two weeks time for the next episode, where I'll be interviewing Lily Wu, who started two seven-figure businesses before she even graduated university and now works at Stripe and has her very own NFT project called Wow Pixies, a social DAO that invests in women and diversity-led projects in the NFT ecosystem. It's honestly a very, very exciting one, especially if you're interested in Web3 and NFTs. So make sure you're subscribed to my podcast to get alerted. And if you like this episode, do share it with two friends who maybe need a little extra inspiration and aren't that happy with their corporate job. And if you're interested in getting some career coaching, feel free to reach out to me or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer for more information. You can find all my contact information in the show notes to today's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I'll see you guys back here in a couple of weeks.